Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The social sciences, the humanities, politics, geography and the like are looked upon with the same reverence as natural sciences. And the queen of these sciences is economic science. Economists in the new era have convinced us that they have unearthed the universal truths of human economic activity and the markets are infallible. We often hear newsreaders speak of the markets as if they were a natural law a deity that cannot be questioned. Our guest this episode is Dr. Asad Zaman from Pakistan. Dr. Zaman has a unique view of modern economics and he concludes capitalism is a house of cards masquerading as objective truths. He should know he spent many years studying and then lecturing at America's most elite institutions, mixing with the likes of Joseph Stiglitz. He calls for an Islamic revival of thinking on the subject. In future sessions, we hope to spend time drilling down into the specific details. But today, we discuss his concerns about how Muslims, especially in his home country, are ready to embrace economic policies that harm human beings. My co-host Riaz Hassan spoke to him from his home in Pakistan. As always, we ask you to explore our insights section on our website, where we put links to his papers and lectures. Also, if you're interested in international politics, then why not subscribe to my weekly newsletter on Substack? Links in the show notes. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Dr. Asad Zaman. Um, welcome to The Thinking Muslim and thank you for joining us from Pakistan. Wa alaikum assalam and thank you for inviting me. So, Dr. Asad, it's a pleasure to have you on our show today. And I just want to start off by briefly covering uh, your background at the risk of some embarrassment to you, maybe. But 
I just want our audience to know um, a certain perspective that you have on education in particular at the moment. You joined MIT, which is an illustrious institution, at the age of 16. You did your PhD from Stanford. You've been to a number of institutions like Columbia University, Caltech. Um, uh, you know, you've been at University of Pennsylvania and so forth. And you've studied at, under some esteemed uh, economics, uh, almost superstars, if you like, in terms of Robert Solow, Joseph, Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winners, no less. Uh, and yet you seem to have a, uh, an inclination of what you didn't learn at these institutions. And I'm quite puzzled by the fact that, you know, you, you, have, um, you have a very strong perspective on what wasn't taught to you at these institutions. So could you kindly elaborate uh, for our audience on what that was? Yes, that's a very good place to start, I think. Um, let's say that um, when I was young, I was 16, I was um, extremely impressed by the West and... Um, I thought I was getting the best possible education at MIT and Stanford. And I pursued an academic career teaching at uh, top 10 universities and uh, getting the publications. But after a while, this game uh, was pretty much a rat race and didn't satisfy me. And um, so I started looking for deeper answers to questions which had actually been shunted aside. I actually, I and fellow students raised these questions to our teachers that, you know, what is the purpose of life? What is the best use we can make of it? And explicitly and specifically, one of the teachers at MIT said that, um, you know, we have learned that you must learn the answers to small questions be before you can tackle the big questions. So this was... Uh, stunningly um, interesting response in the sense that uh, it satisfied us that, we, okay, you don't have to look. We'll, uh, we'll learn mathematics and chemistries and physics and calculus, and eventually we will learn the meaning of life. But it doesn't turn out to be so. This is just a deception. If he had told me that we have no answers, I would have started searching more diligently earlier. But anyway, so... Ultimately, I met some people who came to my office at, uh, when I was a professor at Columbia University and invited me to go and spend a few days with them. And so eventually I ended up doing four months in Tablir, and that was a real eye-opener. And I learned that, um, that the education I had received at MIT and Stanford wasn't really an education at all. It was actually uh, the opposite. It, uh, it, uh, it, it actually was negative progress. What I had been taught was not knowledge, but uh, lack of it or ignorance or superstition. So, but this, this didn't occur in a minute, but it took me, and after I started questioning the fundamental assumptions that had been um, drilled into me my education, uh, it took me at least 10 years to gradually work my way through to seeing that uh, this isn't really what education was meant to be. And after that, I did a lot of research and I learned a lot of history and philosophy and uh, uh, 
um, intellectual trajectory of the Western civilization, which led to this situation, we are we faced with the, actually the issue is very, very simple. The first question that all of us face in our lives is what is the purpose of my life? Equivalently, I have the, been given this very short amount of time on the planet. We're only dancing on this earth for a short while. So the question is, what is the best use I can make of this time? Now, uh, a third way to put this question is that all of us, especially the students should understand this well, all of us have enormous capabilities and potential. We can learn how to walk on coals if we like. We can learn how to become mountain climbers. We can learn how to play uh, world championship chess. We can learn how to, uh, how, how, how to do um, any kind of sports or we can learn how to do mathematics or engineering or other things, be the best doctor. So the question is, Tani, inside every human being, there's tremendous potential. The question is, which of these potentials should I develop? Should I just go with the flow, whatever, wherever the river is taking me, follow the crowd, um, take, the, take the career line, which will generate the maximum amount of money or fame or popularity? Or is there something else I'm supposed to do with this life? So this, this is the most important question. And no matter how much chemistry, physics, or biology you learn, you will not learn anything closely, uh, remotely relevant to answering that question. So really the question is that when we are making life choices, and I'm, taking whether I, whether I'm choosing whether I should take a biology course or, or a psychology course, uh, the question should be answered in light of my, the purpose of my life. Which one of these pieces of knowledge is going to help me more achieve my goal. But this question is never brought up. And uh, so we, we basically run our lives blind without having any goal and just living from moment to moment and basically end up wasting our lives. Is this a what we call a secularization of knowledge that's been taught to us and our children, you know, at these institutions? Um, and, and I think the second question arises is, have we almost made, uh, have we almost been unwilling acceptance of the knowledge that's been taught to us as a universal set of rights or beliefs that we have to abide by? Is there, is there some sort of ulterior motive to this? Is there something more sinister going on in the terms of the way that we've been educated, whether it's in the Muslim world or in the non-Muslim world, because the Muslim world, uh, quite frankly, copies what's, you know, after some time, what's being done in the West? Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of uh, questions you have asked, which are all actually very accurate and intricately related to each other. First of all, let me say that the question of purpose of life is uh, essential importance to all human beings. It doesn't have to do with uh, secular or Muslim. And similarly, the idea that we are here to lead rich and fulfilling and meaningful lives and to develop the potential which has been placed inside us. This is also uh, equally acceptable to all audiences. What Islam does is it teaches us what is the purpose and how to live to achieve. But for those who are not Muslims, uh, the quest for purpose, the quest for meaning and the quest for excellence 
is uh, built into our hearts. It's part of our nature. We all seek to do the best we can, regardless of whether we have religion or not. So that's one thing. The second thing you asked is, well, now the the way is uh, it happens is that you can interpret history as being driven by conscience forces. So there is a conspiracy. Uh, it's not really um, accurate, but in a sense, uh, there are larger forces which shape patterns of history. And if we recognize them, these forces, then we can understand why they act in the way they do without actually necessarily holding any person or group responsible for deliberate uh, misleading education. But so the force that is governs the world today is the capitalism, which is a system designed to maximize profits and designed to turn everything in the world, whether it's human beings or natural resources, oceans or atmosphere or uh, biosphere or animals or plants, everything is just a means for earning profits. So basically, um, this system is a, is a crazy system, which is uh, blindly pursuing more and more dollars, regardless of what happens in terms of ruination of oceans or atmosphere or lives of human beings. This is the way the system works. And you can analyze it impersonally as a force, which is sort of uh, loosed on the world. So given that capitalism is like this, the goal of a capitalist society is to turn everything into an input into the production process. And so for this purpose, education is not designed to develop us as human beings. It's not designed to let us even recognize our true value. It is designed to make us think that we are, uh, we are uh, products for sale. In economics, we teach explicitly that labor is a factor of production and the value of a human life is the amount of money that you earn. And that's how we think that uh, if, I'm, if I can earn a lot, then that means I'm valuable. If I can earn very little, that means my life is worthless. And so when we are uh, brainwashed into believing this, that my life is for sale, then only can we purchase for money. Basically, the labor market depends on brainwashing people into thinking that they are for sale on the market. So when I teach Muslim students, I say that, look, you're not a commodity for sale. Your life is infinitely precious. So money is just a means to an end. Don't think of money as the goal of life. That's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Think about what the goal is and then how much money you need to that uh, acquire that goal. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, that's quite a cogent and lucid uh, perspective on uh, education as we see it in many forms today. And, um, and, and I think we'll come on to the aspect about the fundamentals and morality of economics in a little while. But before then, I wanted to uh, just kind of cover off the, the two main facets of education, which is the physical sciences and the social sciences. And I was quite um, uh, intrigued by a lecture that you gave recently in the distinction between the two and how we perceive that distinction in terms of um, the way equivalence is measured between the physical and the, and the social sciences in that they're both 
uh, thought of as being universal aspects. So is the law of gravity the same as the law of supply and demand? Um, What are your thoughts around that? And could you enlighten us on why we should see, especially the study of physical sciences and social sciences quite differently? Yes, this is a a very, very central question. It's it's far more important than it appears on the surface because the use of the word science uh, deceives and is into believing that, yes, law of supply and demand is like the law of gravity. But this is very, very far from the truth. Uh, Just using the name science doesn't make it into a science. And uh, if you want... uh, Evidence, just look at the global financial crisis. If economics was a science, and economics is supposed to be the queen of the social sciences, then uh, and uh, all of the nearly all of the economists were just surprised and they said that no, this can't happen. And I know in intricate detail why the theories that uh, we use in economics failed to predict the uh, global financial crisis, but we don't need to go into detail, it should be obvious to anyone. In fact, the Queen of England walked into London School of Economics and said that, why didn't anyone see this coming? So, I mean, this is fact is plain as um, the sun and obvious to every every layman that um, economists failed. So if economics was such a great science, and not only did it fail, but actually some a few years, just a few years before 2008, Lucas uh, addressing making a presidential address to the American Economics Association said that, look, we have finally solved the most important problem of economics, which is uh, the prevention of depressions. And now we know the answer and it won't happen again. So that that was just a few years before the global financial crisis. So it's really, really bad. Now, uh, the thing is, what, what is very, very harmful is that the the claim of social science to be a science, it deceives us into thinking that it is a science when it is not. In fact, lots of people who have understood the nature of science, lots of people, you can find quotes. uh, There's one by Foucault that social science pretends to be a set of laws, but it is actually just an expression of ethical commitments of uh, the Western civilization. Similarly, there is this guy, uh, Timothy Mitchell, who starts his book, Rule of Experts, by saying that the possibility of social science is based on taking certain institutions and uh, certain templates of Western historical experience as a template for a universal knowledge. If you just think about it, it's really very plain and simple. What is social science? It's the study of human beings and societies. Well, um, so obviously Europeans had the material of European history to work with as the place to start thinking about human society. So is it true that lessons derived from European society would be universally applicable? It seems almost immediately obvious that it would not be true, that we cannot find universal laws Uh, based on European history, which would also apply to the Incas and to the Mayas and to the Africans and to the Asian civilizations. It just can't be so true. They are are all so different. How can we find? And yet economics makes exactly this universality claim that 
these laws of economics work everywhere without, without regards to culture, without regards to history, without regards to any specific details. The theory of international trade we study uh, does not say, uh, does not differentiate. We don't study what happens if the international trade is between India and Pakistan and what about England and Spain and what about Bolivia and Chile. It just says country X and country Y and, and does the mathematics as if it doesn't matter what X is and what Y is. It pretends to a univer universality which it does not have. And, and this is of crucial importance. So how do you think that this frame of reference has um, come into being? And, and you've touched upon it just now, but um, it, it's not something that's well known. I mean, we study textbooks and economics uh, students or listeners of this call will recognize some of the names that I mentioned earlier, like Robert Solo and Joseph Stiglitz and so forth. Uh, people who are who have done immense amount of research into this area, who have um, you know, had their successes and had their failures and, you know, come up with various theories about whether it's supply or demand or whether it's uh, the issue about resources allocation or whether it's about distribution of wealth and so forth. Um, do, is it, are, are we saying that we need to eradicate or unlearn all of those uh, theories or models as such and that we need to almost start afresh? Is that is that the perspective that we should uh, be looking at? Absolutely. That is exactly what I'm saying. Actually, the best way to summarize this, uh, uh, what the, my position is to say that social science is the religion of secular modernity. It is not a science, it is a religion. And now, um, to make it more precise, you have to, uh, there is a really eye-opening book by Julie Rubin called The Making of the Modern University, Intellectual Transformation and the Marginalization of Morality. So she starts out by saying that if you look at the college catalogs in 1920s, you will find that nearly all of them state that the goal of our education is to create uh, a good character, to uh, instill our, in our students civic virtues and social virtues and let, have them recognize their responsibilities to God, family, country, and to learn how to be a good human being. That was the purpose of education in the 1920s. But if you look at uh, 1950s, you won't find anything like that in any of the catalogs. So what happened that how did this, uh, how did this uh, goal of education to being character building, which automatically involves a learning about the meaning. How did this come to be? So basically, she analyzes this to the emergence of the philosophy of logical positivism, which also happened in the early 20th century. And uh, before this philosophy emerged, uh, truth was, uh, this is how she actually is uh, describing it in the book, truth was one, truth was a unity. It covered moral values and uh, it covered spiritual truths and scientific truths. They were all in the same category. But logical positivism said that scientific truth is special. It depends on purely the facts that we can see. And uh, it doesn't have anything to do with morality. And moral values are just not part of science. In fact, there is no way uh, this is something which actually Hume had said already that you cannot use 
empirical knowledge and you cannot use logic to deduce moral values. So for a long time, people had thought that, yes, this is true. You can't use empirical facts and you can't use logic, but we still have access to moral values because of a number of reasons. Positivism said that, no, morality is just meaningless noise. It is not part of knowledge. So knowledge itself, the concept of knowledge itself was redefined to exclude the idea of character and personality and morality and all of things which are not scientific. Basically, science is the only kind of knowledge. Now, science cannot tell you how to be a good person because it cannot define what is good. So uh, once this was removed from the, the foundation of knowledge was changed, then the, the social sciences, you see, the social scientists used to be activists. They said that our mission is to improve the world. This was in the, and we will, they, they, they developed theories about how we can be a better society and how to move to be a better person. But uh, these were uh, ruled out of the boundaries of knowledge. And so basically these things got dropped from the curriculum. If you look at this uh, philosopher, Michael Sandel, he has a very popular lecture called What is Justice? Which is a lecture to the freshmen at the Harvard, um, uh, freshman in Harvard. And he starts by saying that, look, you think that you're taking this course in morality, justice, and you might think that you will learn how to be a better person, but this is not true. This course may not make you a better person. It might make you a worse person. And he basically goes on in this lecture to destroy the basis of morality. And he says that basically there is no such thing. People have debated these this questions for centuries without coming to a conclusion. So it's not, it's not really something that can be done. So this is now an immorality is being taught instead of morality. So, and I think one of the things that you touched upon is this deification of science almost as um, a universal truth of, of measure in everything. And the only possible truth. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so I, I think for us as Muslims, the question then arises is, if we're not to take the social sciences that we've been taught at school or at college or at university as the universal truth, then what do we have? You know, how, how do we go about then making sense of the world um, in, in various fields, whether it's psychology, sociology, economics, or any other social sciences? How do we then go about almost establishing our own social science? You know, what, what are the uh, tentative steps that we have to take in order to make this happen? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think this is one of the burning issues for uh, the Muslim ummah as a whole. So first thing you have to recognize is that a huge number of values are buried into uh, apparently objective framework. Basically, uh, as um, uh, I said earlier, the, a lot of European ethics and ideas about life are built into what seems like an abstract now objective and mathematical framework. For example, in economics, we study that every rational human being maximizes utility. And this goes directly back to Jeremy Bentham, who rejected Christianity and said that uh, Christianity doesn't offer us any uh, valid uh, theory of morals. So I am, uh, he, he's, he claimed to be a prophet of a new religion. And in his religion, pleasure was good and pain was evil. 
And that is the definition which we use in economics, that the goal of life is to maximize the pleasure we get from goods and services. I have ridiculed this at some place by as the Coca-Cola theory of happiness. If somebody who's, <laughs> so if, who's uh, hot and sweating drinks Coca-Cola and he feels a lot of pleasure, he says, oh, now I found the formula, the secret of happiness. And uh, uh, I just have to build a sauna and get hot and then go into the next room, which is filled with a freezer full of Cokes, and I will be happy forever. Uh, that's, that's the theory which economics is actually teaching us. So uh, one, we, first thing you have to do is dig out these hidden assumptions, these ethical, moral foundations, which are buried and uh, you are, they are made to appear objective. Then um, as far as replacement is concerned, it's very simple. In the West, the human beings in the Western intellectual tradition, human beings don't have any hearts and souls. They only have brains. So the homo economics, he can do calculations and he's rational, but he doesn't have emotions. He doesn't have any sympathy. He doesn't have any compassion. He doesn't have any love. And so basically Allah Ta'ala says that that we created for you the ears and the eyes and the heart. And another place that they have hearts, but they do not they do not understand they do not use these hearts for understanding the world. So the heart is an instrument of cognition. And this heart has been removed from the Western social science. So the basic, uh, that makes everything. That, uh, basically, the theory of political science today is based on Machiavelli's ideas that you can do anything you like in order to win the war. You, there are no ethical rules, no constraints. And we have seen the effects of that uh, uh, and we see continuous, uh, there's continuous warfare because, as you know, Madeleine Albright put most graphically, that uh, yes, it's worth killing half a million children in order to get oil profits. She said it explicitly on 60 Minutes. I wasn't even embarrassed about it. That, that's right. And I guess that's a quite apt exemplification of the, uh, of the principle of utilitarianism in terms of, you know, achieving what you need to do. Um, so I think this kind of moves us on to the issue about, you know, the, the subject at hand, which is economics, which essentially from, as you say, is the queen of the social sciences and which drives the world today in, in various ways. Is it true, would it be true to say that we as Muslims and as an ummah, are, you know, in somehow ingrained into this piece, ingrained into this kind of free capitalist model without even realizing that we are, we all, by word, we, we profess adherence to Islam and we profess adherence to Islam as a way of life. Uh, but really, when we live our lives, we, we are sort of unconsciously, you know, a part of free, free market economics. And you can see it in many ways, uh, you know, right down from the moment we trade uh, both as individuals and as nations and as everything else. So what I'm trying to understand is how do we take these kind of baby steps in order to extricate ourselves from uh, what's going on, on around us? And I think you've touched upon that previously, but uh, is, that, is that a true reflection of, of the world as it is today? Absolutely. Um, I agree completely. Basically, the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, said that Islam came as a stranger and will become a stranger. And he said that you will follow the ways of the Christians and the Jews, uh, even to the extent of crawling into lizard holes behind them. 
And that is exactly what has happened. We have blinded ourselves to the beauty of Islam and we are following uh, West uh, blindly wherever they lead us in the false belief that they, that the path to progress lies in imitating the West. And yeah. this is true from top to bottom. I mean, even very religious people think that that is the, uh, that is the way to progress. So basically, that is why Islam has become a stranger yeah. to us. And so revival depends on... I have a, a sequence of lectures, eight lectures, which I'm mm-hmm. currently running and um, uh, on uh, how to launch an Islamic revival because it's, it's a, not an easy process. There are multiple dimensions of uh, change that need to be done. And um, yes. so there is a short link for it. Yes, and we, we, can, we can certainly provide that link to our audience, uh, okay. Dr. Zaman. Right. And I've actually viewed some of those lectures online. And, oh, I see. And I think some, some of them, um, especially the initial ones, you know, look at how we develop this intellectual uh, capacity or uh, to kind of, you know, look at these kind of, you know, the hidden agendas behind, you know, different issues or different facets that we take for granted. Uh, and if we take economics and, you know, some of the most fundamental axioms in economics, like, um, you know, for example, scarcity, you know, that man has uh, unlimited wants and only a limited amount of resources, which is perhaps the first sentence in any economics book uh, today. Uh, you know, how does Islam view that central axiom of modern economics differently to how it's kind of portrayed in our textbooks? Yeah, so I've written a lot about this, but very briefly, uh, we differentiate between needs and wants. And wants are indeed unlimited, but the Quran says that those who pursue their wants will go to Jahannam. And uh, Hawa is a very bad thing. So uh, on the one hand, you are free to fulfill your needs and, and even your, um, yani the, there's a gradation, Hajat is the needs and then there is um, uh, the... It's, it's a graduated scale, yes. Yeah, it's a graduate scale. Yeah. So Islam is very far from monasticism. It doesn't say that you should live the bare minimum. It says, yes, you can wear uh, decorative clothing. And who has prevented you from eating good food? So you can eat uh, good and you can dress well and you can be comfortable. But do not waste, do not spend excess, do not do ostentation. So once you, if you limit yourself to being comfortable then um, your needs are not limited. And, and going beyond that is actually not permitted. So Islam actually is built on, Islamic society is built on cooperation, generosity, and social responsibility. So those who have more than what they need, they should give to the ones who have need. Uh, capitalism is built on competition, greed, and uh, individualism and hedonism. So mm-hmm. if you have a million dollars and everybody is starving, you should go and splurge on a, on a vacation instead of trying to help others because that will give you maximum utility. So this irresponsibility, this individualism, and you know, I've, uh, it's very surprising that I've seen this in, in so many movies, they, they portray this as sort of uh, the uh, heroic and, and a wonderful thing. Now, there's a man, he has a family, children, and suddenly he sees a girl he falls in love with and now 
the, the great thing for him to do is to follow his desire and uh, abandon his wife and children and go after his love. And that's purported as a basically a great thing for him to do. Mm-hmm. So this, this kind of explicit uh, message is being given that just seize the day, follow your desires. You won't get another chance to live. So uh, forget about hurting others or helping others. You, you're not, everybody is responsible for their own lives. And you should just maximize your pleasure. Mm-hmm. So, I remember in, in my youth, there was this uh, song called 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, in which <laughs> this person is trying to, is feeling uh, bad about dumping his lover. And, and he's being sh- told that, no, it's, it's, it doesn't matter. You don't worry about the other person. You just worry about yourself. <laughs> sure. And that was explicit training. Nowadays, it's, it's, so, it's so deeply ingrained that you don't need that lesson anymore because everybody has learned it. <laughs> That's true. Um, so, 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 Dr. Zaman, I think two aspects, and if, if I can just kind of uh, um, kind of articulate some of the counter narratives to um, the Islamic position when we when we present this, is you know one of the positions is is about scarcity. They people would always argue that you know it's obvious that resources are scarce, and that we always have to make these decisions. So it's very well from a, a high-level perspective saying that, you know, we need wants and everybody, uh, sorry, we need, you know, it's our uh, essential requirements and every we should fulfill them for everybody. But if you take the present coronavirus uh, example and we have, you know, a limited number of hospital beds um, and they say doctors and people are making choices all the time about resources and People are building in quality of life calculations as in terms of, you know, who should live and who should die and who should have a ventilator and who shouldn't. So the allocation of resources is always a problem, whether it's an Islamic environment or a non-Islamic environment. So then how do we then kind of contend with this? You know, surely uh, mathematical formulas and, and various models do help us doing that. Is that, you know, what, what are your thoughts around uh, that particular so mathematical models are, are very deceptive and they do not help us to do that. And uh, basically, this is a misdirection and a deflection. You see, um, you, once you distinguish between needs and wants, then you find that needs are, are, are easily fulfillable for the entire planet. If you look at healthcare needs and uh, educational needs and basic wants, then everybody can live comfortably with the resources that we have. There is no scarcity. It's only that people are buying $20,000 alligator skin briefcases when there are starving children all over the world, malnourished people. And so basically, if we say that, look, we will prioritize. First, we must fulfill the needs of everybody. Then what is left, everybody can use. Then there will be no scarcity. And... uh, uh, this is very easily established. I've done the calculations in one of the papers that the amount of time, uh, the amount of money being spent on makeup today is enough to feed the hungry of the planet and so on. So there are many such calculations. If you look at the amount of money being spent on so-called defense, which is basically killing and bombing, uh, that's enough to provide houses and educations and, and all basic needs of everybody on the planet many times over. So there is no scarcity. It's just a made-up uh, concept. Yeah, I read somewhere recently that there's more disuse housing in the United States than there are homeless people. So, uh, you know, that's a, <laughs> a fact in itself, really, a, a kind of an indictment to the system. Exactly. 
Um, again, another way of looking at this or an alternative discourse to this is the issue of morality. Now, you mentioned that in Islam, there's nothing really stopping us from, um, uh, you, you know, uh, accumulating things, if you like, and, and living a, a reasonably good life um, and spending on ourselves. Um, and then you talk about the issue of, you know, if there is needy, then, you know, it's incumbent upon the wealthy to provide for the poor. But there's no hard restrictions on that apart from the ones that we've uh, come to know in terms of zakat and tzedakah, which is voluntary. So are, are we looking at, are we almost kind of assuming people to be in some ways angelic or in the West, they say everyone should be perfectly rational, right? In terms of their self-interest and the way they should do things. But on the other hand, are we assuming people to be in some way uh, angelic human beings that they would always go about and take these courses of actions in terms of feeding the needy and so forth. Um, but as we know, human beings are frail and are imperfect. And, you know, there may be situations where people don't take those sort of actions. So how do you square the circle on that front? Well, first of all, well, we must realize that we have been deceived about the nature of man. And uh, babies are found to be very uh, compassionate and generous. I mean, if everybody smiles, they become happy. If somebody is unhappy in their neighborhood, they become unhappy and they try to help people. This is built into people. Uh, a baby will, uh, in an experiment, a person drops a pen and a baby will crawl and pick up the pen and give it back to him. So we are built with the desire to help others. And uh, just think about a, a mental experiment. Suppose that you were to splurge, splurge uh, 100 pounds on a luxury dinner or you were to use that 100 pounds to feed a hungry child or, uh, or 10 hungry children. Which one would make you happier and which one would be more long-lasting? We are built uh, with uh, generosity and, and studies show that men, uh, yani basically there is, you see, this is a very important um, discovery in the study of happiness. You see, they studied uh, the theory of happiness. Actually, Richard Easterlin, who was one of my colleagues, he started this whole area of research, can money buy happiness? And he did studies and he showed that the standard of living has gone up incredibly in the US, but levels of happiness as measured by a large number of different indexes have not changed. Then he also studied cross countries that some countries are very poor and others are very rich. So is the average level of happiness in the country um, similar to the GNP? Does, does uh, more money bring you more happiness? And he found, no, this, is, this became known as Easterlin's paradox. And basically the point is that short-term pleasure and long-term happiness are almost antithetical to each other. If you pursue pleasure, it's like a, any uh, a chemical explanation is that it triggers dopamine. And um, uh, this, uh, uh, this is actually an addictive thing. It's just like the Coca-Cola theory. You see, if you just eat and drink and you think that will make you happy, consume goods and services, this is just dead wrong. It, can, it brings you a temporary shot of happiness. But as soon as you finish eating, uh, that pleasure is gone and um, you're stuck with the aftermath and consequences, which are often negative. Happiness depends on character, on personality, on, on developing 
gratitude towards Allah on, 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 on social relationships. And if you are greedy and selfish, you will destroy those social relationships, which are the so most important source of human happiness. Mm-hmm. So basically, we are being driven to commit suicide in terms of uh, uh, healthy building healthy relationships by the wrong philosophies of instant gratification that that are being pushed on us by Hollywood. I want you to explore the, uh, we've we've talked about some of the base principles behind Western economics, i.e. scarcity and uh, limited resources and unlimited wants and so forth. I I want you to kind of cover the similar set of axioms that we have in Islam. Now, uh, as you obviously well know that, you know, the father of modern economics is Adam Smith in this country uh, or everywhere in the world, really. And the Wealth of Nations is the fundamental book by which everyone measures self-interest. But Imam Ghazali for us has a comparative vision uh, in terms of what he outlined. And and you mentioned this in some of your lectures in terms of the Ghazali strategy uh, and his, you know, almost elevation of that thought compared to what Adam Smith brought. Um, so could you expand upon some of the viewpoints that you describe within that uh, for our audience, please? Yeah, first of all, there is a very interesting book called Theft of History by Jack Goody, which explains how a huge number of um, inventions and creations of other civilizations have been taken over by the West and claimed for themselves. For example, Adam Smith, a lot of the material is taken from a school of Persian philosophers. And uh, the most interesting thing, amazing thing, is that Copernicus was actually just a translator of Ibn Shatir and uh, some other Arabi, uh, Arabic astronomers who had already developed the heliocentric theory as well as all the mathematics and the equations. But uh, going back to uh, Al-Ghazali, uh, basically the point is that if we start doing social science on the basis of a correct, you see, basically you have to start with the correct understanding of what is a human being. What does it mean to be a human being? You can be, human beings are very flexible. You can train them. Everyone is born and deen with fitra, but you can train them away from this. And this is what is done. If you take a child and teach him to be generous and cooperative, and uh, friendly, he will grow up like that. Uh, you will teach him compassion and you will teach him love. Or you can teach him to be greedy and competitive and individualistic and hedonistic and he will grow up like that. So uh, then when you take a child which has been brought up in a competitive dog eat dog society and you tell him that this is what human nature is, he will say, yes, that's what he has experienced. But that doesn't mean that that is what is human nature. And once you learn to look beyond that, then you will see that um, human nature is very plastic, very flexible, very moldable, and you can mold it into good shapes. Allah Ta'ala says, and we have shown him the two highways of good and evil. And we get to make the choices. We can choose to be good or we can choose to be evil. And sometimes the choices are difficult. There's a lot of confusion now um, in the modern world today because... Um, there's almost a plethora or an abundance of uh, quote-unquote Islamic finance uh, in the world today. Um, And and there's a view about adversarial economics versus cooperative economics. Um, 
And, and you mentioned a very good example about takaful and insurance in terms of how you can look at the same issue, but in two different lights. Um, and it'd be interesting to understand your viewpoint on using that as a mechanism to just show um, what you mean by adversarial economics and cooperative economics. Well, you see, the, uh, the standard economic theory tells us that we live in a jungle of cutthroat competition. It's a dog-eat-dog world, and this is the way you get efficient. Uh, everybody tries to outdo the other, and um, the one who wins is the most efficient. And as opposed to this, uh, in cooperative um, uh, society, which Allah Ta'ala teaches us to be, that cooperate with either in, in doing the good, then uh, we are looking out for each other. And in such a society, uh, everything changes. The institutions, like in the, uh, basically, the in Islam, we don't have any banks. And in Islamic history, for a thousand years, there was no banks. Uh, but we did have waqf, people who have excess money. What, what do you do with excess money? Well, somebody came with excess money to the Prophet ﷺ and said, I have acquired this much property at Khaybar, what should I do with it? So he said, why don't you set up a waqf? And that will bring you sawab until eternity because as long as the waqf is going and it is doing good, you will be getting the credits for that. So uh, this is a very eminently sensible thing. If you have a million dollars, what should you do with it? Well, that's far more than you can use in your lifetime. So spend it on the needs of others. This will generate love and cooperation in the society, people helping each other. As opposed to this, if you go to the finance operation uh, in a capitalist world, you will, they will say, okay, I'll show you how to turn this one million into two million. Why? It's a meaningless thing to do. Because uh, once you make the goal of life earning money, then it makes sense. But the goal of life, uh, yani having money as a goal of life is already nonsensical. But this is what you are taught in school and, and this is what you are taught. Uh, this is what economics teaches, that the goal of life is to maximize the amount of money because with more money, you can get more pleasure. One of the most fundamental axioms of economics is insatiability of wants. You can, the more you fulfill, the more you get. And actually, actually Islam also teaches us that, that wants are insatiable, but we should suppress those wants. So basically, you um, once you have this spirit of cooperation, this leads to different institutions, different yani, waqf instead of bank, takafil instead of insurance, guilds instead of monopolies. In all domains of life, the concept that we are all brothers and sisters, descendants of Adam and Eve, this leads to an entirely different view of what human uh, society should be like and is like, as opposed to the idea that this is a dog-eat-dog world and we can do anything we like to win. So is it, is it true to say then that the, the financialization of the economy is, it, it's a relatively recent phenomena, maybe after, you know, uh, Reagan and Thatcher in, in the 70s and 80s, um, the over-financialization rather, should I say, of the economy. And in, in terms of the way... Uh, Islamic finance is portrayed today in terms of the abundance of products, whether it's sakooks or takaful or mudaraba products or all sorts of things. Um, are they essentially missing the essence of what's required or 
Um, in terms of convenience, people have, a lot of people have benefited from some of those products in terms of avoiding riba payments, for example, you know, whichever uh, opinion you take. But are, are, we, are we kind of almost saying that we're essentially missing the essence of what finance and what money means in Islam? Because money, um, and I read this a long time ago, was that initially the concept of money wasn't as a medium of exchange, not just by Muslims, but by non-Muslims as well. The early Spartans used to use big iron bricks so that they wouldn't be traded uh, for more money, right? Um, so capital does not beget more capital. So are we essentially missing something here when we're looking at Islamic finance and the direction of travel that it's going in at the moment? Yes, there are a large number of complex topics involved. One is simply that the in uh, if you look at uh, the European history, uh, greed, accumulation of wealth, these were all considered very bad things, hoarding, accumulation. If you look at even Dickens and his portrayal of... Um, Uncle Scrooge, who was a miser, and basically the story is a moral story, uh, Christmas tale by Dickens, I think, in which uh, the miser is told that if you if you uh, keep accumulating, uh, you will die uh, early death, and then he starts giving away his money to the poor, and uh, he becomes happier, and he becomes. Uh, but now, if you look at the Disney cartoon Scrooge today. He has his money bin, and he's uh, he's. This is portrayed as being he as he's being very smart. This is no longer a vice. So the accumulation of wealth used to be a vice, according to Christian teachings. It has become a virtue. So this transformation, once it took place, once it became socially acceptable to accumulate wealth and to display luxury, which was also considered a bad thing earlier, then. Uh, um, the institution of the bank was emerged to allow people to accumulate wealth. Uh, as opposed to, the, so now the difference between Islamic finance is that, and, and uh, Western finance is that Islamic finance tries to find a halal method of accumulating wealth as opposed to a haram method of accumulating wealth. But it does not look at the fact that accumulation of wealth for its own sake is not permissible in Islam. Uh, what you can do is accumulate wealth if you have a, a purpose in mind for it, which is uh, Sharia compliant, which is yani, which can be actually to feed your family. That's fine also. But if you're uh, accumulating a million dollars, this is obviously not about feeding your family. Well, if it's about feeding others, if you're building a hospital, if you're building, uh, if you're going to feed the starving children and you need millions of dollars for that, then fine. That's uh, So Islam doesn't actually pose any barriers to accumulation of wealth, provided it is for some useful purpose. But just to accumulate wealth for its own sake, this is not permissible. And unfortunately, Islamic finance is, participates in the same spirit. It says, we don't ask questions about what you intend to do. Mm -hmm. with it will just show you how to grow your yeah. wealth. And that's not sure. actually permissible. Um, and I think in order to just kind of... Uh, conclude our discussion, if you like, Dr. Zaman, I, I wanted to just kind of explore with you um, the modern trends within uh, capitalism as such and you know, free market economics, because uh, since the global financial crash, we've seen a number of initiatives come about into being. And, and uh, you know, maybe a lot of them are well-intentioned uh, about the gaps in free market economics and how 
we as a society, as a global society, need to kind of plug those gaps. So we people have recognized the fact there is inequity or substantial inequity in the world between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and we're looking at ways or people are looking at ways and prominent econ- economists are looking at ways of how we can do this. So, you know, Thomas Piketty being an example of the wealth tax and you have people like Mariana Matsukado about, you know, looking at different initiatives and people are looking at universal basic incomes and looking at the environment and, you know, taxing the environment and the issue about the theory of the commons and so forth. So all of these initiatives are coming about in terms of changing capitalism, if you like. And you have this uh, now this new movement about stakeholder capitalism, which says that profit maximization is not the only game in town. You have to look at your wider perspectives or your wider externalities, if you like. So are these initiatives um, a kind of a, a reaction to what happened in the global financial crisis? Are they looking for something different? Is capitalism looking to mold itself into this kind of well-intentioned, well-meaning uh, kind of force for the future? Is it is it just a game? Is it just trying to absorb these feelings into a society? What's your uh, observations and perceptions around this area? It's very clear that all of this is just eyewash. Um, the in the COVID crisis, the trillionaires got extra trillions, and uh, that's uh, any massive amount of money has been gained by the top 0.001%. Over the past five years from 2010 onwards, uh, in 2010, uh, about 350 owned half of the uh, global wealth. And um, it uh, went down to about 60 people over uh, by the last year that I looked. Every year, the concentration of wealth increases Phenomenally, the number of people who own half the planetary wealth will fit into a comfortable tourist bus today. So, um, the basically the uh, problem for capitalists has always been to manage the discontent, to make sure that there is no large-scale revolt. And so, you keep talking about you know poverty and and um, the UBI and etc. So the words will console the people. Yes, something is happening while um, uh, nothing is actually being done. And sometimes you throw in a few sticks, a few throw in a few scraps to make sure that there's no serious revolt. You buy out the leaders and you give enough to the poor to prevent them from revolting. That's that's the name of the game. And it can easily be documented. So these things cannot... Great change. Um, So finally, Dr. Zaman, it's been a really uh, interesting and a lucid conversation. Um, What would your final advice be to our audience in terms of how we especially look at social science and also us as Muslims, you know, what should we be doing in terms of uh, understanding the, the theory of economics better or understanding the part that we can play in changing our society and ourselves? Well, I think that, um, the task of rebuilding social sciences and Islamic foundations is imperative for the intellectuals, but this is not the vast majority of your audiences likely to be. Although once we understand that, then we need to build coalitions and and start working on small pieces at a time because this is a huge job. 
but more importantly i think that um, yani for um, on a personal level we should wake up to the fact that we have only one life to live and uh, that we should not sell ourselves cheap to the we should not become a part of the capitalist machinery for the production of wealth economics teaches us that labor is one of the factors of production so and and basically it and encourage us to teach uh, to sell ourselves cheaply our lives are infinitely precious to god and allah taala says that if you take one life it is as if you have killed all of humanity and if you save one life it is as if you have saved all of humanity here allah taala in the holy quran is telling us that your life is precious so in what sense is my life precious it is in the sense of potential just like the seed is precious because it has the potential to become a tree so every human being has infinite potential and the whole world is a distraction it is trying to buy us cheaply there are a thousand um, different claimants to our lives they all want to buy us they are they are missionaries with zeal who are trying to attract us to their mission and this is what the test is about to to um, recognize the one true god and to reject all of the false claimants to godhood and uh, so this is the test for us so we should understand that we have only one life and we should think about the purpose and we should try to use this life efficiently to achieve the purpose and to lead meaningful lives and that's i think on a personal level uh what is most important dr zaman um it's been a pleasure having you today and it's been a really fascinating discussion um and i hope some really lucid thoughts have come out of this discussion that uh, our audience can take advantage of so jazakallah khair for your time today
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.